From the studios of Bruce Street Mafia, this is a Red Dog Fred production. Welcome back to the Logical Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Lodge. Um, today, I wanted to do something different. If you notice, uh, my guest here is a little different from our previous guest before. I've got a whiteboard. So, uh, before you tune this out, I, I really want to, this, what I'm going to be talking about today is, is near and dear to my heart, uh, but it's also very, very relevant. And I feel like um, this is something that perhaps not a whole lot of people understand, yet it's involved in our everyday life. Um, not a whole lot of people have a good grasp, maybe, of the nuances of what I'm going to talk about today, yet... Um, it's something that they're willing to live and die for. Um, so I wanted to be careful because I don't want to offend anyone. Uh, I don't want to make anyone stand offish towards pursuing truth. Truth is not relevant, and we've kind of talked about this and, and been over this. It's, it's not subjective. Um, so today, what I'm going to do is I'm not, it's going to be a little different, is I'm not going to give my opinion. I am actually going to, we're going to just take a journey together, and we are going to talk about this right here. So, this guy right there, that guy right there has been more influential than any other human being that has ever existed. Now, this is near and dear to all of us, um, and if you have grown up here, then you have been affected by Christianity in some way or another. So I'm not going to sit here and preach or, or tell you that you should be a Christian or not be a Christian or be an atheist or whatever. This is merely to educate you guys on the reality, not, not the uh, opinions, not the feelings, um, not the subjective connotations or interpretations of this right here. We're just going to merely talk about the history and really, really, what's interesting is the history of that guy right there and how it's developed to today. So today, we're talking about Christianity. Now, Christianity is the world's largest religion. Um, this religion means a lot of things to a lot of different people, and it's very overwhelming and hard to navigate. Um, some of us have an idea that it's all the same thing. Some of us have an idea that their particular group that they're a part of are the only ones that have it right. Some branch and say that certain groups might have an understanding better than others. Um, and so what I want to do is bring a historical understanding to Christianity so that we can all use the same language when we're communicating to one another so that we can maybe better explore truths. So... Christianity today in 2023 is broken up into three different parts. So we have on the one end the Protestants. On the other end we have the Catholics. And on the third end we have the Eastern or the Eastern Orthodox, right? So this is how Christianity is divided. You if you find yourself or call yourself a Christian, you are going to be in one of these three groups. Now, what makes these three groups different from one another? Well, quite a bit, actually. In fact, I can see, and we can make, um, let's say, Venn diagrams to kind of show how all three of these kind of overlap on one another. But before we do that, we need to get a clear understanding of the words that we're talking about. So the first one on the list is what everyone in 
this area is probably most commonly familiar with, and that's Protestantism. Protestantism is comes out of the uh, the Reformation. This is the uh, 1500s. Martin Luther famously started the Reformation, although there were er, tremblings of it, so to speak, historically uh, previous to this. But a a, um, a monk by the name of Martin Luther nailed his uh, 95 thesis to a door, a cathedral door, and essentially it was his reasons why the Catholic Church should change. So, for the, again, for those of you that are live in this area, if you are a Baptist, if you're a Methodist, if you're a Jehovah's Witness, if you're a Mormon Presbyterian, um, if you're non-denominational, if you go to a, uh, a, a the vine or whatever it is, you're going to fall into this category. Or maybe you say, I'm a Christian, but I don't subscribe to any one denomination, that you're still a Protestant. Or maybe you say, well, you know, I, I believe in Jesus, but I just don't go to church. Most likely you're still a Protestant. So Protestantism is going to be your most subjective form of Christianity. Within Protestantism, we have roughly 30,000 different denominations. So what a denomination means is a denomination is merely just a group of people that subscribe to a certain set of ideals. So again, within these three regions of Christianity, Protestantism, uh, we have about 30,000 different belief systems. So if we go on over to this middle one, we have Catholicism, and a lot of you know this as Roman Catholicism. Roman Catholicism, believe it or not, the Roman Catholic Church is the largest church in the world, and it makes up, uh, I want to say, roughly a billion members, something along those lines. But what a lot of people don't understand is, is along with the Church of Rome, I believe... There are roughly, and I correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe there's roughly 17, maybe 20 plus other churches that are in communion with the Bishop of Rome. So, Catholicism, what makes it uh, its own thing is they have what is called a pope, right? And the pope is the dude that leads the church in Rome. So, we have about a billion people here. Right, So a lot of you might be familiar with this. You might have gone to a Catholic Mass. might have been different. Um, you might have seen maybe head coverings, maybe not head coverings. Maybe um, the, the style of worship was somewhat different, and we're going to get into that later. But we just need to, to first get into these, these three different subsets so we can have a clear understanding before we actually start talking about the history of the church itself. So this third category, we have the East, and this is Eastern Orthodoxy. We have roughly 350 million Eastern Orthodox. Eastern Orthodox, or that's an M, should be an N, million. Uh, Eastern Orthodox consists of uh, roughly, oh, let's say, 25-plus autocephalous churches, meaning um, these are churches that are in communion with one another, but have different traditions. So, again, to recap, we have Protestantism, which is about 30,000 different denominations, and it starts with uh, Martin Luther nailing his uh, thesis to a cathedral door. Um, we have Catholicism, which has uh, the primacy of the Pope in Rome. He is the, the main dude that is in charge, and that's what unites the Catholic Church. And then we have Orthodoxy, and that's about 350 million members. These, these guys are mostly in the East, um, and what makes them unique is their um, autocephalous churches. In other words, these churches, these 25-plus churches, all have different traditions but recognize one another as the same. So, now that we have a clear understanding of the three versions of Christianity, and now we can kind of maybe see ourselves in one of these, maybe we're familiar with two of these, or even all three of these, maybe you've been to a Greek Orthodox wedding or, or, or seen the movie My Big Fat Greek Wedding or whatever, and kind of maybe have an understanding of that. But we are going to now actually go into history. 
the reason why we needed to make this very clear, those three distinctions, is because right now, in 2023, most of us, when we view Christianity, we think of one way and one way alone in which we can know it. How do we know Christianity? Well, if we're in 2023 and living in Tennessee, odds are we know Christianity through this thing right here. Right? So, that right there, the most printed book in the world. And that is where, where we are going to really get into the nitty-gritty. Because most of us in this area believe that this is the only thing that we need to understand or know God. Now, again, this is not uh, going to be an opinion-based podcast. This is just going to be informative of the history, but what we want to do is maybe look at the history of, of this thing right here, okay? So, the Bible. The Bible, depending on if you are Protestant, or if you're Catholic, or if you're Eastern Orthodox, are going to have different amount of books. How crazy is that? The Protestant Bible is going to have, I believe, 66 books. The Eastern Bible might have between 80 and 81, and we'll talk about that later and why that's kind of up for grabs. And the Catholic Bible, the last I checked, I can't remember, but I want to say it is 78 books in the Bible. So again, these are all the, the reason why I'm illustrating this is not to show the exact number of books in the Bible, but to show that we have three different types of Christianity, and this thing that is very, very important, or what we think is very, very important to know Christianity, well, look here. These guys, right, these guys have a lot more books than these guys over here, okay? Th these, these 1 billion and these 350 million, they have a lot more books over here, but this book... To these people, the Protestants, right, that is the only way in which they understand and can know God. But that is why we want to talk about this, because both of these people had a role in the development of this. And I'm kind of curious as to why these have less books than these, or why these have more books, however you want to look at it. So, to talk about the Bible... So, what does that mean? What does early Christianity mean? How did Christianity even develop? Well, let's just start there. In the first century, right, we have this God-man that is essentially synthesizing all of Western pantheistic religions. So he's taking religions of the Frankish, of the Gauls, of the... Any of these barbaric Germanic tribes, he's he these Western religions, right, that look towards um, the stars, so to speak. Uh, they they look outward um, and above. Um, so things are important. This is why they have wor This is why they worship uh, different deities that are are surrounded like Horus or or um, or. Odin, or these these different deities that have a lot to do with celestial bodies, right? And then we have, over here, the East. And we have these Eastern religions, and these Eastern religions are focused on the inward, right? We have Confucianism, we have Buddhism, we have all uh, we have Zoroasterism at this time frame, and all of these are, are, are focused on seeking that inward peace and balance. And right in the smack dab of these two conflicting things, we have this narrow strip of land, right, where kind of all of the world at this point is converging. So Egypt has been taken over in the first century, and Judea really is going to be a, um, a place of uh, kind of turmoil turmoil a little bit uh, because there's a lot of different cultures that are coming in and out. So in the first century, we have this God-man, and he comes down and he says, I'm both God and I'm man, and and he has these followers. And these followers, um, they are killed a lot. So in the first century, in the second century, in the third century, we only know about Jesus 
not because of this. This doesn't exist yet, but we only know about Jesus. We only know about Christianity by the writings of others, right? So before we even get into the Bible, we need to know who were the people that put this book together. So we're saying that in the first century, right? So we have Jesus. And then in the second century, right, we have his disciples, right? And then we also have his disciples' disciples, right? So what I mean by that is we have Polycarp, who is a disciple of John. We can read about his works. We have Irenaeus, who is a disciple of John. So we can actually read, and remember, Luke, a disciple of Paul. So we can actually read about, um, through extra-biblical works, about what these people, what these guys were up to in the first, second, and third century. In the third century, if you'll remember, there was something really big that happened. And this is when Christianity became legal. Okay? So, 325 AD. What, what happens in 325 AD? We have the Council of Nicaea. It's called by Constantine. It's the first great church council. It's the first time that the Christians can actually be out in the open. So for 300 and roughly 25 years, right, what don't we have? We don't have a Bible, okay? So the Bible does not exist. So for 325 years, we don't have a Bible. In fact, what's interesting is we don't even have a list of what the Bible is. We don't even have a list of what these scriptures are. So you, you, you say to yourself, how does that work? How did these people function? Obviously, they didn't keep the same faith, or maybe they fell away, or maybe they had a different understanding, and they very much did. They very much did have a different understanding than what we have currently today, and we know this because we can read from the writings. So, um, for instance, the very first compilation of the New Testament books was actually not even mentioned until the 4th century, right? And this was by a man by the name of Athanasius. So St. Athanasius was the first person to actually compile just a, a, a what we consider to be the canon of Scripture, right? So, again, the question becomes, before this dude put this together, and first of all, who is this guy to even do this? What existed? Well, what existed was we had actually these groups, these pockets of Christianity that existed all over the world, right? And it was illegal. Remember, it was illegal to be a Christian. You were killed and tortured in the most horrendous ways. And we can read about that not only from the Christians, but from uh, um, uh, historians of the time, uh, from uh, secondary sourcing. So we, we do know about the lives, and we can read about their daily lives, how they worshipped, how they thought, and... So what we had were, we had for 325 years, roughly, we had these pockets of Christianity. And we had over 200 plus books of Scripture, right? So we had over 200 plus books of the Bible. How is this possible? How did people come to know and understand this thing called Christianity if they didn't even have the freaking thing that we think that they need to have, right? So, and first of all, out of these 200 books, which ones made it, which ones didn't? And how do we know which ones were maybe the right ones or the wrong ones? It gets even better than that, folks. And this is kind of what I wanted to talk about today, is the compilation of Scripture is a very nuanced and complex uh, historical notion that actually takes around 800 years for Christians to all get together and say, this is what we believe to be kind of mostly holy scripture. Now you say to yourself, why? Why, why, why would they not have had this book that we obviously all need to understand and know Christianity. Well, let's think about back in those time frames. Just take a pause right now. Nobody could read, okay, first of all. Second of all, books were 
very, very valuable. They were written on a particular um, material called uh, vellum, which is leather, uh, stretched leather that's been scraped, and it's just a very expensive material. The scribes, when they when they when they wrote this, it was in the original uh, languages that were translated, and with no spacing, and they were literally just letters. And this is how every single Bible looked. Right? Was this with no spacing whatsoever? Was so this was the Bible, right? So no one knew how to even read this whole thing, right? Because this is what it looked like. And, and eventually, I'm just going to get into gibberish because this is what every single Christian on the planet, when they saw this thing that the, the priest would bring out, this book, first of all, is the only book they've ever seen, most likely. Um, they couldn't read it. They had no idea what it was. They didn't even know what... I mean, they had an under, basic understanding of written text, but for the most part, the layman didn't even have a, a grasp of what written text were, right? So, what did we do? How, and, and, and what is the history behind the development of this, and why is this important? Well, I think if we jump ahead into 2023 and we look at how Christianity has been articulated, uh, it has been everything from the most beautiful glorious thing you can imagine to the ugliest, most atrocious thing you can imagine and everything in between. We have, you know, uh, for-profit megachurch malls. We have uh, sex scandals. We have all sorts of crazy things that are going on all over when it when we tie into Christianity. And a lot of people kind of want to say, hey, I'm going to throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. And that's, again, why I want to do this today is I wanted to educate and kind of go through again this actual historical record of how this thing called Christianity has developed and come into our time frame. So it wasn't until roughly 800 that we have our first actual codified, um, the entire church gets together and says, basically, these are going to be our holy scriptures. Now, how did they do that? How did they decide what that was going to be? Well, there's some very interesting facts that I'd like to bring up to you. Um, for instance, I mentioned Luke. The book of Luke made it into the canon of scripture by one vote, right? So they did this through a vote. They brought all of the church at that time was broken up into three different uh, levels of authority, right? So and this was the church for the first thousand years or so, right? Um, so for the first thousand years or so, this is how the church functioned as far as an, an, an authority these guys right here, if, if we remember in 2 Thessalonians, um, Paul talks to Timothy, says, be careful on who you lay hands on, right? On who you bring into this office right here. So those, those guys earlier, when we mentioned the Catholics and we mentioned the Eastern Orthodox, this is going to play a, a, a very particular important role because these guys right here have something called, or this is what these churches claim, called apostolic succession right? Basically what that means is these guys, the Catholics and the Eastern Orthodox, they're going to claim that their bishops have all been ordained. They've had their hands laid on them from Jesus to the apostles, to Paul, to Timothy, and so on and so forth. And they can trace it all the way back until the year 2023. So that is kind of a, a side note, but Anyways, in the year 800, roughly, so we have these, these, these levels of authority, remember, we have the bishop, the priest, and the deacon, um, and these guys are the important ones because they're the ones that can actually ordain other bishops, um, and they can ordain priests as well. So that, that, that makes them important. So these guys all meet, and there's roughly 250 of them, and they all meet from all over the world, and they get together, and they say, we're going to have the, the Spirit lead us, much like they had in previous centuries, just like after 325. Remember, this was the first one of these, was 325 A.D. and the Council of Nicaea. 
But they have, right? And I never can spell my C right. My spelling's terrible, by the way. But they have roughly these 250 guys. They get together in the year 800, and they say, hey, we're going to have the Holy Spirit lead us in a vote to decide what is going to be a part of the canon of Scripture, right? And so that's, that's what they do. And we have books like The Shepherd of Hermes, and we have books like the Epistle of Barnabas, and the Book of Thomas, and um, all these different books that throughout the centuries various Christian, um, similar Christian groups have added or subtracted those books. So in again, in, in, in roughly 800 years after the birth and death of Jesus Christ, we now have our official version of the Bible, right? So, the only church at this time that exists is just the Church of Christ, the Christian church, right? So, at, at this time, right now, this is the only thing in Christianity, right? So, we have a, a breakaway groups that were... Um, that were actually kind of squashed in various centuries, and I'm, I'm kind of going to list some of them out right here because it would be unfair to say that the church was united because it actually was not. Um, and I'm just listing some of them right there. But throughout the church's uh, lifetime, so to speak, we have these different groups that kind of want to break away but overall, the Christian church keeps reuniting. And it doesn't unite over what it reads in the Bible, right? Because, again, it doesn't have the Bible at the time. It doesn't unite over, like, the certain things, like, as far as, like, uh, material objects or places, like uh, Rome or Constantinople or what have you. But it unites over a set of ideas, and that's what makes this group in particular, different from the other religions of the time, is that they regularly get together. Again, we have 250 of them that, that got together just to decide what, what was going to be in the Bible and what wasn't. But they regularly got together uh, as a group, and they, they decided what was true, what was not true, and they believe that it was on the promise of Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit, that the Spirit would lead them, right? This is their claim, that the Spirit would lead them to make these correct decisions. So, interesting, when we're looking back at the historical time frame of Christianity, we see that the Bible, which is so important to us in, in the year 2023, 20, we don't even have a full list until roughly the year 800 AD. But it's not actually until the Protestant Reformation, right, that we actually have uh, the Bible becomes very, very much more important. And so we're going to kind of get into that, and that kind of gets us into uh, a, 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 the newest or a different segue into the, the kind of the history of the church. And we'll get We'll, we'll talk about the Catholics in the East and, and kind of how they're the same and similar. But right now, again, we're just kind of talking about the Bible and the history of the Bible. So at, 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 at the time, um, there was a Dutch uh, theologian and philosopher, Erasmus, and this was, he had began to go all over and try to collect the oldest versions of Scripture that he could find. Um, and so it wasn't until the Protestant Reformation that we have what are called the magisterial Protestants. So these are going to be your John Calvins, right? John Calvin right there. We got your Martin Luther's, right? We got your Zwingli, right? So these, these are guys that are all working, so they're magisterial, right? They're all working, with the local authorities, right? So they're trying to reform the Catholic Church at the time. And so they say, hey, the best way for us to reform the, the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, is for us to get a better and clearer understanding of the Bible. Because obviously they, they, don't, have a, they don't have a good understanding of the Bible. So that's what these reformers did. So they started going and they, they, they tried to find the oldest copies that they could. 
So a quick cursory Google search, when you look up where did Martin Luther translate or from, from what did Martin Luther translate, a quick Google search is going to say, well, Martin Luther translated from the original Greek text. Well, that's funny because, again, this is a show mainly about history, so we're, we're going to talk about what those original Greek texts were. So, again, we're at the Protestant Reformation, the Magisterial Reformers. They're saying, hey, the only way for us to reform the Catholic Church is to make sure that we have the right Bible because it's only by Scripture. It's only through Holy Scripture that we can come to understand Jesus. It's not through the papacy. It's not through the Pope at Rome or whatever. That's the only way we can know him. So we've got to make sure that we have the right Bible. So we actually have... We actually have four different what are called codexes, right? So these four different codexes are what the reformers were actually after. Now, I some of them, right? And again, a codex is uh, is a complete um, compilation of scripture, the earliest complete compilation of scripture we can find, right? So the ones that we start to use in the Protestant Reformation is the ones that they're having a hard time getting a hold of. We have Codex Vaticanus, Vaticanus or however you pronounce it. Um, we have um, Erasmus Codex, uh, which is a, a less known that he's, that he's using. Um, but essentially, these codexes that we're finding... What's interesting, and I can't remember the the names of them, so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna list all the names of them. You can do a quick Google search of the four codexes. But what's interesting is, and the point of all of this is that these codexes, right? Pretty much in that order. So these codexes from which the reformers went to translate when they say oh i translated from the original greek no 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 they were translating from a codex from the fourth century the fifth century the sixth century and the seventh century so what's interesting to me is again the 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 problem here is we have a whole 400 years of christianity that we have to rely and believe that these people translated these scriptures word for word, and remember how there was no spacing, letter for letter, that they kept these things in good faith. They couldn't read it. So what was it? Why, 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 was, why was this important to the Reformers, but it wasn't important to the Catholics or the East? And we're going to pause on talking about codexes, and that will help us get a better understanding of why we only have them from the 4th century or the 6th century or the 7th century, and why we don't have Luke's original writings or John's original writings or, or, or writings from the 2nd century or what have you. Because this thing right here, again, it did not exist until roughly the 8th century, right? We had canon. What does canon mean, Right? What does canon mean? And at the time, canon was the way in which we worshipped and sung the scriptures, right? So this was sung scriptures, right? So th th this is essentially why we did not have a group of the, the Bible was because at the time... Remember, before 1000 AD, we, we roughly have one unified church. At the time, they don't have a testimonial-based worship service, much like we're used to in 2023 at a Protestant uh, church, but they have something that is called liturgical, right? And liturgical-based worship is a ritual, right? It's a ritual-based worship that is passed down through something called tradition. And this is the point that the reformers were like, we don't trust that. We don't trust that thing right there. This thing right here, tradition, we don't like it. We can't rely on tradition to know that we're properly understanding God or that we're properly worshiping God. There's only one thing that we can rely on, right? And it is the Bible. Now, 
Do you see where I'm going with this? For us to have this, we have to have this, right? Because for 400 years, we don't have even a copy of the New Testament. And in fact, all those four codexes that I wrote down, they're not actually complete. It's not until, I believe, the 900s that we have our first complete full Bible. And, I, and, and, and I'm doing all of this from memory, so forgive me if I get my facts wrong, but I believe that Bible is on display. I believe it is at the uh, British Museum. But so, so again, we have a liturgical-based worship, which is based on a ritual, rituals, right, which are passed down through tradition. And part of this tradition is singing the canons, right, is singing this right here. In fact, one of those councils that I talked about, they got together and they said, hey, you guys can't even use melodies when you're singing this because it's too distracting. So we know what they were using when we read the canons from the, the Council of Nicaea or the Council of Constantinople or the Council of Ephesus or any of these, or the Trullo or the Quintsex Council or any of these uh, councils. When we read the actual canons from them, we kind of get a better understanding of how these people were worshiping. They were worshiping through song. That was it. They got together. They had a ritual. And this ritual was, of course, we all know, they were eating and drinking, right? Bread and wine. And in fact, Paul in Corinthians kind of talks to the church of Corinth and he's like, hey, you guys need to cut that out. Y'all are doing a little too much of that, right? So we know that they were getting together and they were doing that in their rituals, right? We know that they were getting together and they were doing something called baptism, right? That's spelled completely wrong. And then we have, we know they were doing something called marriage. That was another ritual that they performed that not everyone was doing, right? What else were they doing? We, we, we know that they were doing, um, let's see, I'm trying to think of some of the other uh, liturgical practices. Uh, we know that they were standing, right? Um, so, I mean, that, what I'm getting at is we can look and actually read about how these people that kept these scriptures, that kept the Holy Scriptures for all of these years, for these 800 years that we trusted to say not only that, one, they got the right books, right? They chose the right books. They got it right. They got it right. Right? We have... 200 plus books, they get it right. What else do they do? We have to trust that they preserve it. Right? So we have to trust first that they've got it right. We have to trust secondly that they preserved it. Third, right? That no additions, this is important, or subtractions, right? So when you actually start looking into the study of all of this, studying scripture, right? There's a big fancy word for it, or actually studying any language and looking at what these languages mean um, and what the words mean in context. It's a big fancy word called hermeneutics. Hermeneutics, and, and that is studying what the Greek words meant and their nuances and, and, the, and, and the Hebrew and the original text, that did not start until the Protestant Reformation. Now, yes, we have Jerome in the 4th century. He's a very prominent uh, figure here. Because Jerome in the fourth century, right here, um, he he translates what we have as the Latin Vulgate, and so this becomes the standard for the Roman Catholic Church. Now, if you do read Jerome, and we can we can read you know his writings or whatever, he does talk a little bit about hermeneutics, but it, it doesn't play near a point as it did for the reformers and the Protestant churches since then. So you might be in church and you might hear. Uh, a preacher say, oh, well, the original Greek t text said this, or the original uh, Hebrew text said that. But what that preacher is doing is, again, he's presupposing that for 800 years, the people that existed before these scriptures were compiled, he's presupposing that they got it right, 
they kept them all together, they didn't add, and they didn't subtract, right? So that most printed book that you find in every single hotel room, what I'm getting at is it, it didn't just end up there. It didn't just, Jesus died and then we have the Bible, and then Christians for 2,000 years have been reading the Bible, and that's how we come to know Christianity. That's how you and I know Christianity in 2023. But the history of the Bible itself is more nuanced, and it's more complicated. Again, it didn't exist. Again, Christianity was illegal for 300 years. So for 300 years, people were meeting in secret and doing all sorts of weird stuff. They were passing these letters. This was a letter from the Apostle Mark, or this was the, a letter from the, uh, the Apostle John, or, or whoever. And, and guess what? These letters didn't match up, right? They had different translations. They had different variations. And so when the council met of Trullo, right, or whatever, the Quintex Sex Council in the 800s that is formalizing these canons, they actually even said, hey, we don't even know which translation is correct because it's not important to them. At the time, that's not how Christianity functioned. It wasn't to examine every single word in Scripture and understand every single word in Scripture. Because then you have problems philosophically, like, well, what do you do with people that can't read? Or what do you do with people that are mentally uh, incapacitated? Or what do you do with people that don't have access to this or to this tradition? Or maybe they read it and they interpret it something different. Or maybe they've read it, and this is the reason why we have 33,000 different ways of looking at it. And within these 33,000 different ways, right, we all know we have branches of those congregations that have split off at their local level and even at their local level, right? Because we're all looking at this book and we're subjectively reading it. But this is not the history of that book, and that's not why that book historically was compiled. The people, again, that historically compiled that book was they did it for um, so that it could be sung during their rituals, so they could they could sing these words as praise and worship. It wasn't meant to be studied. It wasn't meant to be read and dissected and to say this translation was right or that translation was wrong. Or, or now we have the Dead Sea Scrolls. What about the Dead Sea Scrolls? You didn't mention the Dead Sea Scrolls, right? I hear, I hear this all the time whenever we're talking about the history of the Bible. Dead Sea Scrolls, I mean, this partial, partial pieces I mean, just fractions of Isaiah and fractions of some of these other scriptures that are just are old. But that's it. There is. It's not until you know almost 900 years, 800 years after Jesus died that we have a complete actual Bible that we can still hold in our hands today. So again, it didn't play the role that it plays today in modern Christianity. So, or rather, in Protestant Christianity. So. We're going to kind of leave the Protestants right now, and we're going to really quickly, while you're still with me, we're just going to go over these two guys right here, right? And how do they interpret the Bible? How do they look at it? So we know the Protestants believe that you read the Bible and you come to understand Jesus Christ through it and it alone. Uh, so how does the Catholics and the Eastern Orthodox, how do they view Scripture? Well, the Catholics in the East obviously look at it very, very differently. Um, so the Bishop of Rome, right, the, the Pope, it wasn't until, I believe it was the, oh my goodness, the, the name escapes me, um, the Council of Trent. I believe it wasn't until the Council of Trent, so we're looking at the 1600s, I believe it wasn't until the Council of Trent that even the Catholics codified a, and it was in answer to the Protestant Reformation that they codified their scripture. So we have the Council of Trent right here. So it wasn't until roughly, and I can't remember, but I want to say it's, I want to say it's the 16th century, 15th century, 16th century. It's right around the time of the Reformation. It's during what's called the counter-reformation. So this is the Catholics' response. They say, okay, you want us to codify the Holy Scripture? We'll codify the Holy Scripture, and we'll say what's in those books. Now, the East and these guys, it was kind of hard to talk. And it was hard to talk because at the time, roughly in you know 1000 AD, 
These guys are getting ransacked by Visigoths, right? And by the Franks, right? And they're cut off. These guys are over here in Byzantium, right? Constantinople. And they, by all accounts, consider themselves Roman. They call themselves Roman. They think of themselves as the Roman Empire, right? It wasn't until, I don't know, the 19th century that we started calling them Byzantium or whatever. But they, these guys still considered themselves part of the Roman Empire. They were the Roman Empire. And as, and as far as they were concerned about them, well, they just were eaten up by heresy and weird groups, right? So they, they, they had a hard time communicating. Again, they're getting sacked over here. And then in the east, it's a, it's a little different. They have a separation by the, the, the growing Islamic caliphates that are, that are going to separate uh, geographically separate these two. But it's different. It's more laxed over here. This in Byzantium and Constantinople, we actually have a, uh, a, a, a Christian emperor. Um, we have, we're, they're settling the, the Russians at the time. They're settling Kiev. They're settling all of these other groups. So... As this is kind of, we're in the dark ages here, right? Over here, it's been thriving this entire time. So how do they look at Scripture? Well, since they didn't have to respond to the Protestants' claim of the Bible is the only way for us to know authority and for us to know to, to know Christianity, they never actually codified it. So when you actually go and look up what is the, the Eastern Orthodox you know, canon of Scripture, it's going to be very difficult to find a, a actual answer because, again, there's roughly 27, however many autocephalous churches, and they're all going to kind of operate independently and on their own. Because right here we have this top-down uh, authoritarian king-like perspective, and over here we have uh, uh, an emperor that says, hey, it's legal, do whatever you want, and so as a result, the church authority pretty much stays to that original bishop, you know, priest, deacon, and as a result, that might be one group, and that might be one church, so that's what I mean by autocephalous, so they may say, oh, we have 80 eight books. And there might be another group that says, ah, we, we have 87 books, but we still recognize these people as the same because, again, Scripture isn't how we come to know and understand Jesus Christ. These two groups, the Catholics and the Eastern Orthodox, do not believe that that's how you come to know and understand Jesus Christ. They believe that you come to know and understand Jesus Christ through apostolic succession. They believe it's not through reading, again, through reading the Bible, but through the church itself. Because the church itself is the pillar and foundation of truth, according to these two groups. So it is only through the church, the body of the church, that you can come to know and understand Christianity. So, I know I've talked a lot about the Bible and about Christians, and I know some of you might find this disagreeable. I have tried, I've thought about this podcast for months, and I really just wanted to give a non-biased historical lead-up to Christianity, because when I talk to people and when I kind of understand and, and, and when we're talking about Christianity, I, it's very difficult to, to have conversations if we're not all kind of using the same vocabulary and we were not all kind of in the same understanding. But again, there's a lot of people that just believe the Bible appeared, that there is no historical, you know, long historical, historically rooted um, development. They believe that it was just Jesus died, then we have the Bible, and then you read it, and that's how, how you figure out. Um, but that's not what Christians have always believed. Um, and again, the people that kept the Bible, the, key, the people that were the vanguards of it, the people that passed on the Holy Scriptures, the people that decided what books were going to be in the Bible, the people that um, kept it and translated it uh, perfectly, those, those people did not think that you could just pick up the Bible and read it and come to know God. 
They believed that you could only know God through his body, through his blood, through his soul, and through his divinity. And it was through the participation of these different churches that you came to understand that. So in the East, um, again, it's it's this liturgical, uh, ritual-based practice of you come to know Jesus Christ through the liturgy, uh, through through his body, his body enriches, and 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 you grow into his body and soul. And over here with the Catholics, they believe the same thing. They believe that it is through a process called deification that your uh, you grow into understand the absolute divine simplicity of God Himself. Um, so. If you like content like this, I love this kind of stuff. I know it's boring for a lot of you, but man, I just think it's so fascinating because how we think, again, determines what we do. So I want to know why it is that I think the way I do. So I look at history. I look at philosophy. I, I want to look at Christianity and, and other religions and, and, and see, also see myself in, in Tennessee in 2023 at the age of 37 or however old I am, right? Like, I, I have to have that perspective as well. So I encourage you guys to take a step back. If you're breathing all heavy and you're mad because I've said something that maybe you disagree with, I've, again, I've tried to, to just only state fact. And if I did misspeak on a specific fact, don't throw the whole baby out with the bathwater. There's some real philosophical implications here with what I just kind of went over in the last hour about the development of the canon. And maybe take a step back and and um, appreciate the fact that there are these different belief systems, that it's not simple. They're not all lumped together. If you've had a bad experience with Christianity, don't say that it's it's all like that. If you've had a great experience with Christianity, guess what? It's not all like that. Um, so I just want you guys to maybe keep an open mind. Um, and and this is, you know, we've talked talked about it with politics and we've talked about it some with religion. But I just really wanted to touch base on this. And, and, and I want to thank my guests, the whiteboard. Again, if you guys want more content like this, I don't have to use a whiteboard. I can figure out a device where you could actually read my my writing or something like that. Um, and if you do, uh, man, I'd love to hear about it. Just chat out in the comments. Um, and anything that I said today that makes your blood boil, we're going to do another John Takes on the Internet. So remember, whatever I said on this whiteboard, me and this whiteboard said, and you want to talk about it with me, uh, I'll keep you updated and keep, keep you updated on Facebook. In the meantime, like and follow and share for more content. Thanks, you guys, for letting me do this. This was awesome. I appreciate y'all for watching.